Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. I am Mark Hamilton, joined by my co-host, my peer, my colleague, Mr. Mark Daly. It is the eve of the eve of the eve (laughs) of the U.S. Grand Prix at the Circuit of the Americas in Austin. People are arriving. The teams are landing. Fans are congregating in Austin from all over the continental U.S., and it is an excitement bonanza. I've been joining Spaces Chats all weekend. People are talking. Twitter's a buzz. It is a blockbuster, total sellout. There's reason to be excited, and probably not just because this is the first time we've had a Grand Prix on this continent since 2019, but the upswell, the groundswell of support for Formula One is perhaps at an all-time high in the United States, and that's really why we're doing an extra show this week. We usually don't record on Monday unless there's a Grand Prix the day before, but there's so much to get through. We've got so many great questions. We thought uh, thought we thought we'd throw an extra episode out there. Mr. Daly, how are you, my friend? I am not too bad. I struggled through Monday, full disclosure, but uh, there, there was a pretty good football game to watch earlier tonight, which kind of wiped or washed out the bitter taste of uh, Monday. But like you said, we are on the eve of the eve of the eve of the eve of uh, something. I kind of forgot what it was with all those eves going on, but I kid. I kid. The U.S. Grand Prix literally just days away now. Exciting. It'll be great to, to be able to to finally watch a race a- again in our own time zone because we get so... We're not exactly in our time zone but close enough and we get so few of those that we can watch live each and every uh, week without having to get up at like three in the morning here on the west coast so that is absolutely a bonus really looking forward to this one and um, I'm hoping that I'll I'll get some good rest between now and Sunday because I'm pretty pumped for this one I have to say. I have to ask as well, my boss is a huge Buffalo Bills fan. He grew up in Southern Ontario in the Greater Toronto Era, and there's a lot of Bills fans in that that neck of our Canadian woods. I got to ask, did the Bills win? Did the Bills lose? Because depending on your answer, I'm going to have to approach my work day slightly differently tomorrow. Yes, I, I hate to tell that all those fans in Southern Ontario that the Toronto Bills did lose tonight. Oh. It was an exciting game. Derrick Henry and the Tennessee Titans won 34-31, to 31, but it was, uh, it was a good game. It was a, a fun game to watch so it just it just means that my boss won't have the normal patience for my (laughs) regular shenanigans during the work day so nor should he he. (laughs) yeah i'll have to to approach my work day with a little more professionalism than i would otherwise so good looking out thank you my friend so with with all of that said we promised to get right down to business today simply because we've got so much to get through we've got some great questions that it came in through twitter we've got some even better questions that came in from email but before we do We had some technical issues getting the podcast off the ground tonight. And in the meantime, one of our listeners who lives in Toronto, but is from Jeddah 
in Saudi Arabia was messaging me, and he and I have casually been talking about me going to the Grand Prix in Saudi Arabia with them. But those conversations have kind of picked up some steam recently since I'll be in the region anyways. And in the time that we were down trying to get this podcast up tonight, those conversations accelerated. And right <laughs> before you said we're good to go, I was about to click buy on some tickets on Expedia. So you may have just saved me from a very difficult conversation with my wife because she's not informed on that uh, entire subject. So thank you for saving me from uh, from some scolding that would have been much deserved. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, if there was something important like having to book some plane tickets or something like that, I, I could have waited a couple more minutes because <laughs> I was uh, struggling here. You know, I, I like to reboot my computer before we start and I rebooted in plenty of time. And then for some win- reason, Windows just didn't want to cooperate. But I guess Windows is as Windows does. So... Yeah, let me uh, let me just check here. So me. the last time I rebooted my Mac was Never. 2017, <laughs> exactly. which is roughly around the time I So all the shenanigans aside, I'm going to throw it over to you. Okay. We we've got some breaking news. Well, it's breaking in the sense that it happened right after we published the last podcast, <laughs> but usual. the 2022 calendar is out. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, this is great because it, it's funny. It seems like every time that we, the, the way that we record the show doesn't really have a lot of congruency with like the, the Formula One news cycle. And it seems, I think we, we've made the sarcastic comment many times in the past that by the time you download this, this will be uh, official, of course, and it usually is. But uh, yes, joking aside, Formula One did finally release the 2022 calendar. So March 20th, we are back racing in Bahrain followed up by a week later in Saudi Arabia, and then back to Australia in April. And I'm really looking forward to going back to Australia. I mean, it's been on again, off again, and uh, it's been more off than on, obviously, and we're not going to go there at all this year, so good to see it back on. Imola, April 24th, Miami, May 8th, Spain, Monaco, Azerbaijan, Canada, June 19th, then we go back to Europe uh, with the UK, Austria, France, Hungary on uh, July 31st, then we go into the summer break, Then we come back at the end of August for Belgium, the Netherlands, Italy, and that will be Monza, Russia, Singapore. Good to see Singapore back on the schedule. Japan, USA, Mexico, Brazil, and Abu Dhabi. So pretty much a very familiar end uh, to the season, but some interesting twists. I'm glad to see Imola back, and uh, it's going to be a busy, busy, busy year in 2020U. 22, yeah, absolutely. Not 20 a, you. <laughs> a couple of the the takeaways that I had looking at this is yeah. I think a lot of us are excited to be back at Imola. Understand that Imola is really a placeholder because we're expecting to see China back on for 2023. Yeah. So that's not a permanent addition. Although I think you could probably make a business case and a historical legacy case for retaining that beyond 2023. But one of the things that I thought was quite interesting was a story broke earlier tonight from a news channel in. In Las Vegas, and David Stern, um, Adam Stern, sorry, retweeted (laughs) this a little earlier that there are quote unquote executives traveling to Coda, traveling to Austin for some high level negotiations with Liberty about bringing a Formula One race to Las Vegas as soon as 2023. That's not Hmm. even remotely realistic, but just reinforces the fact that you and I have been on this bandwagon beating this drum for some time, that Liberty's long-term, medium-term, short-term ambition has always been, will always be, to have three races in the U.S. And the reality is having three races enables them to 
to greatly expand the exposure of the sport. And it also significantly increases the value of any network TV deals, right? Like this is the same thing that we saw in the late 80s and the early 90s when the NBA invited Orlando and Miami and Minnesota and Charlotte into their ranks. And it was why the NHL expanded so aggressively throughout the United States in the 1990s, because they recognized that the future of the sport wasn't gate revenue, it was TV network money. Mm -hmm. But the NHL can't go knocking on the doors of big networks in the US if you have 21 teams and seven of them are based in Canada. So they expanded rapidly because they needed to create additional viewership so that they could sell these networks onto the, or sell the product onto the networks. Now, Major League Baseball was a little bit different because in the early 90s, they expanded largely to offset the losses from the fact that the owners were caught colluding in the 80s, um, which is a whole different story. But yeah, the calendar itself, and I get a little off topic, 23 races, the longest calendar that we've ever had. You and I have spoken about this before. It's going to get longer probably before it ever gets shorter. The most recent Concord Agreement, which runs from 2021 to 2025, stipulates up to 24, 25 races. So 23 is just the next the next step in Liberty's ambitions to continue growing the sport. Any big takeaways, anything that, that you saw or that kind of stood out to you when you took the first glance at the calendar? Well, like I say, I think it was interesting to see that uh, that there is the addition against uh, of Imola, which will be, I guess, a third year in a row, which, uh, like you say, I think there's a good case to, to make it a, a permanent uh, track. I mean, we had some good races there over the past uh, couple of years. Uh, good to see some of the the uh, the, the more classic tracks uh, coming back, if you want to call them that. Uh, and uh, good to see, well, obviously, the Netherlands is going to be there for the, the next uh, foreseeable future. But interesting to finally see where Miami kind of fits into the bigger picture as well. And then just more to your point about uh, getting another race in the USA, specifically Las Vegas, that kind of makes uh, sense too. I mean, it's, I mean, not to take away anything from, uh, from Coda and, and Austin. I mean, they've done a great job hosting that Grand Prix over the last uh, number of years, but to really make an impact, uh, like you say, I mean, there has to be more than one race a year. I mean, there's only one race that only hits one track in the United States in a calendar year, that's a really tough sell. I mean, it, it, it's a really brief thing that makes makes it hard to really get people excited about. But you know, if you're going to have uh, Miami at the middle of the year, Coda at the back end of the year, maybe you fit uh, Las Vegas in there somewhere as well, uh, potentially, then I, I think it uh, it makes it more sellable, like you say, to the um, uh, to the networks. And I think it gives uh, fans based in North America a lot to, to look forward to as well. Because I mean, it's still, despite all the phenomenal growth and interest that we've seen, the, uh, during the past uh, 12 months or so, that it really is uh, an undertapped and underutilized uh, market here in terms of uh, growing the sport and the exposure on many, many levels. I think two more quick points before we move on to the next topic, which in itself is actually interrelated with this one. Mm -hmm. Canada's back. It'll be the first yep. time since 2019. So as much as it's been painful to not go to Coda for a couple of years, it'll be three years between trips to Montreal, which yeah. is great. And the other curious thing too is Jeddah, the Saudi race, is going to debut at the beginning of December this year, mm -hmm. it, it kicks off the calendar on March 27th. So I guess it'll be the second race after Bahrain. But that's only three and a half months between trips to that track. So we'll get to become quite intimate with that tread or with that track at the uh, Jeddah Cornish uh, early. So again, I'm excited to see that track, but it's interesting that we'll be there twice in three and a half months. And again, we've spoken to that before that the only reason it's on the calendar this year uh, is because Liberty went and knocked on the doors and said, hey, we could really help yourself or help, you could really help us pad the schedule for 2021, given the uncertainties re regarding COVID. You know, one thing too that... Um 
before we move on with this, you know, I, I can't honestly say that I'm disappointed to see that, uh, you know, China isn't back. I have to admit, I'm not really a huge fan of the Shanghai International Circuit. I mean, it, it's got some good portions to the track, but if it was... If it was a better, more exciting track, like a venue for the for the cars, I would be a little bit more disappointed. But I, I really don't know if there's anywhere else they could host a race. I don't know if there are any other, you know, tracks within China that uh, that have that uh, you know that level license to host a Formula One race. But it just it that track has never really done anything for me. I. I feel exactly the same way. I feel bad for the fans in that country totally. because I think there yeah. are some really great Formula One fans in that country of more than a billion people. 100%. But I think that track does a disservice to the sport and I think it does a disservice to the fans. It seems bland. It seems gray. It seems sterile. It's not in a great locale. It's parked really next to an industrial park. It doesn't have a lot of atmosphere. doesn't have a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. I think I would love to see, obviously, a better track that is more racy and perhaps extracts a little bit more from the fan experience but to me it's always felt very gray very generic and the fans yeah. in that country have deserved better oh totally the, the thing is I, i've never been able to figure out like what is the identity of this track like what is this yes track yes to be? like is, is this a power circuit is this is a tight technical circuit it seems like it's they, they tried to do too much when they designed it and it just doesn't work Anyways, uh, moving along, and you hinted at this uh, already, Sebastian Vettel said that uh, Formula One could stop being special because, uh, well, basically we're getting too many races on the calendar for for next year. Anyways, uh, Seb had to say, quote, this is only my opinion and it's not worth anything, but I think we should not have that many races. It's for a number of reasons. I think one, maybe it's too many races for people to watch. It's not special anymore if there's that many. And second, I feel for the staff, us drivers, we are at the good side of things. We can arrive on a Wednesday night and leave if we find a flight, etc. on a Sunday night. But the team already has a lot more stress. They arrived on Monday or Saturday the week before. They build the garage, prepare the cars, and then they also have to run the full week and then pack down, send everything back and prepare in the factory. For them, it's a job that you're busy all weekdays and nearly every weekend, so you have no time for yourself. And I think we are in a time where people are growing more and more conscious that they have a life too and that the life doesn't belong to the employer, end quote. You know, he might be kind of uh, downplaying his comments a, a little bit uh, saying this is my opinion and it's not worth anything. Hey, Seb, you're a four-time world champion. You're racing for a pretty big team. You have a voice and I'm glad you're making that voice heard. I think it's uh, it's very important because it's, it's easy for us to sit down on a Sunday, turn on our TV, turn on our iPad or laptop, however we enjoy Formula One and sit down for a couple of hours and then go and rage about it or gloat on social media, whatever the case may be. And then we're done, right? But it, it is a huge, huge ask. And we've talked about it quite a bit uh, in the over the past uh, several weeks. And uh, I, I'm really glad to see somebody of Sebastian's stature and standing within Formula One stand up and, and say something. I think it's good. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's not just this issue that Seb has leveraged his platform to promote and to discuss and to mm-hmm. bring awareness to. We, we've we seen him take all kinds of other social positions and social stands. Yep. You know, I think he recognizes that, look, my career is finite. I'm not going to be here forever. And if I'm passionate about certain subjects and topics, whether it's uh, the environment, and obviously he's been very big on sustainability and Formula One's role in the global landscape of sustainability and moving us towards a more sustainable 
sustainable future when it comes to the consumption of fossil fuels and leveraging more sustainable fuel sources. He's been a big part of that. All kinds of other really important social issues. It's good to see. I just, I think it's important and I really, really processed this internally when we were at Turkey and there were so many people asking the drivers and asking the teams and asking the team principals about the impact of a 23 race schedule because at that point it was pretty clear that that's what we were going to see for 2022. But I just hope that the drivers and the teams and the team principals understand that it was by and large the team principals and the team owners that agreed to the 24-25 race calendar. It wasn't something that is being imposed upon them by the liberties and the FIAs of the world, they agreed to this. They signed up for it because they're the ones in position to benefit from the additional Grand Prix because Grand Prix bring in race sanctioning fees and they bring in additional race revenue. So mm-hmm. ultimately, I think if anyone has a concern about a 22-23 race calendar, whether it's because it's too many races, because of the strain it puts on the teams and the drivers and the engineers and the mechanics and the factory workers, they have no one else to look at other than the people that run those teams because they're the ones that signed up for it. And I think it's also a good opportunity to kind of revisit that topic quickly that you and I spoke to a couple of weeks ago, which is obviously when you sign up for 23 races, there's going to be a mental and a physical strain and impact on all of those involved. And one of our, one of my friends, one of our our great listeners had sent me an article from racefans.net a couple of days ago, and it kind of spoke to the fact that, Hey, look, on average, an F1 team employs about 700 people. Mm -hmm. That's a big organization of that 700 people, about a hundred of them travel to every single race. So about 14% of the team. So hundred people from every team, that's about a thousand people from the F1 ranks that are traveling to every single race. And I've kind of been wishy-washy on this topic in the sense that, yeah, it, you know, it kind of sucks that you're going to have to travel a lot and you're going to be away from your family a lot, basically half of the year, but you know what, you're doing something that you're very passionate about and you really love. So maybe you got to kind of suck it up. But at the same time, my thought is most of these folks probably realize how lucky they are Mm -hmm. and that this is something they've dreamed about and worked towards for their entire life. And if Liberty came forward with the teams and said, we're going to race a 50 race schedule. They're probably just going to suck it up and do it. So maybe it's one of those situations where a lot of these folks aren't comfortable even speaking up because they know they're in, I don't want to say a privileged position, but they're doing something that they probably recognize hundreds of thousands of other people doing similar lines of work would kill to have the opportunity to do and probably just aren't willing to risk that by being too vocal and too, too, uh, inquisitive about why they're being signed up for this. So so I feel for for everybody involved that said there's a lot of industries that obviously travel a lot or on the road a lot. People work on rigs and they work at camps in the far north or in the far south and all kinds of other places, but I just I just hope that the teams are open to having conversations with the staff that travel and even the staff back at the factories about what their experiences are and how this could impact their quality of life and their mental health and their well-being and their relationships with their family. Another quick note, just because we're kind of on the topic, next year, India is scheduled to race 17 times between Mm -hmm. February 27th and September 11th. All of those races, of course, in the continental US, except for the one trip to Canada. NASCAR, the NASCAR Cup Series races 31 times in the regular season Mm -hmm. next year, heading into the playoffs. So again, the travel's not as strenuous, but there are other races series that see tremendous strains on their drivers. I think what really makes F1 unique is the sheer amount of mileage that the teams put on. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it really is a different thing. I mean, sort of traveling around the continental United States, although that's not a a small thing to kind of turn your nose up at. I mean, that is, uh, you know, quite demanding for all the people that are involved in those series. But I mean, Formula One is crisscrossing the globe multiple times uh, throughout the year. And I can't help but wonder if at some point uh, the the cost of like, uh, you know, the, the human capital might become a, a little bit uh, too much, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Anyway, so let's take a break here when we come back. Still uh, plenty of news to talk about. And then because it is kind of like a ca- – I know casual Fridays is a thing. <laughs> I don't know what the, the equivalent for a movie All of is. my Fridays are casual. <laughs> I, even if my boss doesn't know, they're all casual. You better hope your boss is not listening. So anyways, <laughs> leaving it there, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment, so don't go away. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, well, welcome back to the show and moving right along. So last week we were talking, and and this has become almost, um, what what do you want to call it, Uh, a favorite kind of like pet subject here on the show, and the, the possibility of the VW group entering into Formula One, which just seems like it's going to happen at some point, uh, you know, see, almost uh, sooner rather than later with all the, the news that's been uh, percolating up and bubbling up to the surface over the past uh, weeks and months. Anyways, one of the places or uh, one of the teams that we thought that might be a possible landing spot for either a, 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 as a customer team or perhaps as a works team would be Sauber. And so anyways, uh, Andretti uh, Motorsport, uh, pardon me, Andretti Autosport, is in possible takeover talks with the Sauber team. And uh, of course, well, Sauber, you know, they are, I guess, the owner operators of uh, Alfa Romeo, which, you know, of course, is more of a, a naming thing rather than uh, anything, uh, more, more than anything else. But apparently, Andretti Autosport is closing in on de- uh, a deal that would take a majority stake of ownership in the team. And apparently, these talks are at a very advanced stage of uh, discussion. So this is very, very interesting. I mean, Michael Andretti is uh, obviously he's a team owner. 
He's a former IndyCar driver. He's the race uh, the, the son of uh, 1978 Formula One world champ Mario Andretti. He uh, raced in Formula One for McLaren way back in the 90s. So it is, you know, I think this is an exciting uh, development. I think this is, uh, you know, I, I think this is a really cool thing. It was a good opportunity for me to go back and revisit the careers of both Michael Andretti and his father, Mario Andretti. Yep. I forgot just how rich their driving histories were. And to put this oh, in perspective. it's crazy. It's amazing. Mario Andretti raced in Formula One from 1968 to 1982, winning the Formula One World Championship, the World Drivers' Championship in 1978, the last American driver to do so. His son, his son, Michael Andretti, raced in Indy from 1983 to 2002, winning a title in 1991. He also spent a year with the McLaren team in mm -hmm. 1993. And Mario Andretti raced in Indy from 1979 to 1994. So the two of them spent almost a decade sharing sharing the same track in the same championship. It's, it's unbelievable. Both are champions. They have a huge legacy in American motorsports. Obviously, Michael has been absolutely the backbone of Andretti Autosport, which it itself has been hugely successful. They've won the Indianapolis 500 five times in 2005, 7, 14, 16, 17. They've won the IndyCar Series Championship in 04, 05, 07, 12. Teams won the Indy Lights Championship 08, 09, 18, 19. They've been hugely successful. Now, having said all of that, I'm going to throw it a hot take. Mm -hmm. I think this is a terrible deal for Sauber if it's anywhere in the ballpark that it's being speculated. So earlier this year, the Andretti family set up what's called a special purpose acquisition company, a SPAC. This year intended to raise about $250 million through an initial public offering, an IPO. Their thought, their expectation is that they could probably purchase a Formula One team for $200 million. Hmm. If they can do that, all the power in the world to them. But if I am Sauber, there is no world, there's no reality in which case I'm selling my team for $200 million, $300 million, or even $400 million. The average value of an NBA team is north of $2 billion. The average value of an NFL team is roughly $4 billion. The average value of an NHL team is now almost a $1 billion. If I'm able to pick up an, a Formula One team when the sport is at the absolute bottom of what should be a very, very, very powerful upward financial trajectory. If I can pick up a team for two or three or $400 million, I'm going to do it. But if I'm Sauber, why am I selling now? Why am I selling with the Volkswagen Auto Group just starting to sniff around with potentially other OEMs starting to sniff around? And if Liberty can sign up a couple of other big TV networks and get a couple of other big sponsors in, if they can sustain this this growth, this popularity, the surge in interest for another couple of years, the yep. valuation of these individual teams will continue to skyrocket. I just, I think this is a bad time to sell unless, and you make a great point, it's reported that these conversations, these talks are pretty advanced. Maybe the offer to Sauber was just so significant that like, hey, we're listening. You've piqued our interest. We've never seen an offer because the other conversation I have is, Sauber's been involved in motorsports for an eternity. Yeah. Why now? Why at this stage do they want to move on? Obviously, we've seen tremendous, tremendous independence in terms of their relationship with Ferrari. It's very clear that they're not going to be keeping Antonio Giovinazzi, who Ferrari is very invested in them keeping for that Italian linkage and because he's one of their Driver Academy uh, products. It's speculated that perhaps the reason that Alfa Romeo, the Sauber team, hasn't named their second driver is because... 
the Andretti Autosports team would want to have some say in that decision. But I just, unless it is an absolutely blockbuster deal, I think this is a bad move for Sauber. But it's also a bad deal for F1 because if Sauber signs up to a low ball offer, it brings down the valuations of Mm -hmm. all the other teams in the sport. So if it's a big offer, awesome. Welcome to Formula One. Andretti, you are going to kill it relative to your other American peer. And then I think my last comment on this one is people keep saying, hey, F1 needs another American team. There's no American team in F1 today. Don't you dare call Haas an American team. They may have an owner who's based in the US. He's using this team merely to leverage the Haas automotion or automation branding. He's not doing anything for American motorsports. He didn't start an academy. He's not investing in American drivers. He's done nothing to grow Formula One in the US. This to me would be the first American Formula One team. And I'm, to your point, excited to see it if mm-hmm. it's the, the right deal. Yeah, I have nothing further to add on your comments about Haas. I, you know, I, I totally agree with that. My thoughts on what you're saying just about to Sauber themselves, like if this is going, excuse me, going to happen and why now? I've just kind of had the feeling that that Sauber's almost been hanging on for the past several years. I mean, let, let's remember going back not all that long ago, this is a team that barely squeaked through into the modern era, had a 2017 car with a 2016 engine. And I mean, they were just puttering around at the back of the grid. Great call. And I... I can't help but feel that had they not had that injection of that uh, the Alfa Romeo money and that branding deal that perhaps they might have uh, disappeared and I kind of feel that they've maybe stewarding is maybe not the best way to say like stewarding like a Formula One team and kind of keeping the seat warm but I kind of have the feeling that uh, what I've read and kind of listened about this whole Andretti situation is that I think that they were prepared to wait for a certain amount of time and maybe after Liberty came on board, maybe they start to see some positive things happening that maybe they've got some line drawn in the sand that if we can get recover this much X dollars in a sale, then we take it and then we just cash out of the sport. So I don't know. We will wait and see, you know, how this uh, happens, uh, you know, whether that uh, Andretti takes over the team outright or they become a majority stakeholder or whatever it may, may be, but... That's just uh, that, that. That's my thoughts on the subject. That's a really great. Uh, that's a really great counterpoint in the sense that hey, for this team, they inherited it, they purchased it at a fraction of what even its minimal valuation could be. Mm-hmm. It's all upside for them. And the other consideration too here is maybe that team is nursing some pretty significant debt, and they could wait out for a bigger value or kind of valuation. But their their debt could simply continue to balloon and offset any of those gains anyway. So for them, maybe there's an opportunity here, an all cash deal. They can tap out. They can pay off their debt, move on. Maybe they can focus on other motorsports ventures, but I think you've uh, you've presented a really good counterpoint there. But you made a really good point as well, and I, I think that if I'm the Daimler-Benz group or I'm Ferrari or one of these uh, sort of really top-tier Formula One teams, I'm a little bit salty. I'm a little bit grouchy if Sauber's, you know, selling for bargain basement prices, you know, when, when you know, especially when you're uh, Daimler-Benz and you've in- invested billions and billions, and of course you've won, like, 45 championships in a row <laughs> or at least it seems that way over the past uh yeah 45 championships in in, in 10 years uh I don't, I don't do math for a living no but so and you get, the final you'll go ahead sorry Oh, no, I was just going to say that the final point as well on this one is it's not just necessarily the teams because mm-hmm. I have some sources on the inside 
as I think most great podcasters do, whether they're real or not. But we have some <laughs> sources on the inside that are very clear that Formula One is very eager to add two teams to the grid. And yeah. it would be structured very much like an expansion expansion team in the NBA or the NHL. It sounds like Liberty would keep some of the money and distribute some of the money to the other teams because in doing so, you compromise the amount of championship money that might be eligible to teams because it's understood that no team is going to sign up in the current era if they're not able to access championship money. And currently only teams that finish in the top 10 have access to championship money. So if you finish 11th or 12th, you're not cashing in any dollars. But the reason that Formula One is eager to add teams is because they're desperate to offset the billion dollars of revenue they lost in 2020. So there's some urgency from Formula One to add some teams to the grid. And all of a sudden, if Sauber sells for a dirt cheap valuation, then all of a sudden it compromises potentially what Liberty might be able to sell a couple of expansion teams for. You know, I was just thinking that, uh, you know, if you're going to treat it like an expansion team, can we have an expansion draft? And if so, could we draft like Dennis Rodman to like that? I mean, is Dennis still, you know, is he like, okay, or is he persona non grata? Oh, he, no, he's, he's around. He's making the podcast rounds. He's, he's pretty funny. I was just kind of wondering because, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, he did kind of have that link to a certain uh, far East Asian dictatorship and teaching a certain person, but you know, whatever, I, you know, so we'll kind of leave that aside. But hey, Dennis, you know, if you want to come on our show, I mean, it'd be awesome. Anyhow, moving along, talking about other well-known sporting personalities, and I think this is awesome. Danica Patrick, a legendary U.S. racing driver, is going to be joining the Sky Sports F1 team for the U.S. Grand Prix at COTA this weekend. And I think this is awesome. I think it's pretty cool how they've had these guest uh, hosts over the course of uh, this season. And I know that for, for and, and I'm not uh, suggesting that you have any sort of uh, anything less than a positive uh, opinion of Danica Patrick, but just talking about Nico Rosberg, you were not a fan of his at all until he came on and started to uh, doing some of these guest commentary spots this year. And I think, uh, you know, that you've actually flipped your opinion on that. And I really like what they've done that. And I'm really excited to see Danica in the booth this weekend and and contributing to, to this race. So yes, you're absolutely right. I was not a big Nico fan and I started softening up to him that weekend when he was in the booth with the Sky Sports team. And then by by almost accident, I ended up watching some of his his vlogging material on YouTube. And my initial sense was, oh, he's, he's biting at the style of all these young amateur YouTubers. But as I watched the video, I'm like, this is actually pretty sincere. This is pretty authentic. And I really fell in love with the quality of his material. And I've sat through a couple of the videos where he takes people on tours of tracks, like like he takes people on the sim with them. I've learned quite a lot. He's actually a great personality. And I was all for him disappearing from the <laughs> Formula One ecosystem in 2017. But back to Danica Patrick. So unknown story. I was a huge, huge Danica Patrick fan when she emerged in IRL back in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And it was bittersweet for me because it was a celebration of a woman breaking through into a top tier open wheel racing series. The problem was I was hugely anti IRL because I was a big (laughs) champ car guy. And there was these two competing forces, but good news in a sense, Champ Car was eventually gobbled up by IRL, and a few of its uh, events ended up on the IRL calendar, including Toronto and including Edmonton. So I drove overnight 11 hours from Vancouver to Edmonton in 2009 in the blistering heat to see Danica Patrick live. And this speaks to just how transcendent of a talent that she was even back then, that I drove with one of my best friends 
11, 12, 13 hours through the night to get to Edmonton to be able to see her live because I have this bucket list of all these great athletes I wanted to be able to see perform live, whether it was whether it was Shaquille O'Neal or Dwayne Wade or Kevin Durant or any of these great NHLers or any of these great Major League Baseball players. And I've managed to see them all, but Danica Patrick was one of the was one of the ones that was on my bucket list. So I did actually manage to see her in 2009. Back then, you were able to get much closer to the drivers in the paddock. So I got within a few feet, didn't get to meet her, didn't get to speak to her, but got a couple of great photos of her. Mm-hmm. She was a rock star and it's hard to explain just how transcendent and how big she was in the 2000s. Obviously, the the money and just how lucrative NASCAR was at the time, she was drawn into NASCAR. So her IndyCar career ended, I think, in around 2011, if I recall. So she moved over to the NASCAR series, and I kind of lost track of her at that point because Mm -hmm. I've never been the biggest NASCAR fan, although I think you and I are committed to doing a NASCAR episode at one point where we watch her race live and comment on it. But she's transcendent, and I cannot wait to hear her in the booth. I think that's going to be a total blast. Yeah, just uh, going uh, to what you were saying there, is that uh, she moved over to NASCAR in 2013, and I think she only stopped racing relatively recently. I think uh, maybe as recent as 2017 or 2018. But uh, yeah, she was a fantastic driver, and uh, just can't wait to, to hear her in the booth and uh, all the context and uh, perspective and knowledge that uh, she brings. But talking about uh, some of these things, you were talking about all these legendary players and personalities that uh, you wanted to see. You mentioned Shaq in there. I have to ask, do you have a copy of Shaq Fu around in your house there? I mean, (laughs) you have to. Come on. I I don't have a copy of Shaq Fu. I never had a 16-bit gaming console (laughs) on which it was released. I think think it was available for Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis. But I should say there's an entire episode of that really hilarious sitcom, Fresh Off the Boat, I think it's called. Um, but there's a whole episode about the Shaq Fu, Shaq Fu video game, which I thought was hilarious. That's awesome. I got to check this one out. Okay, let's uh, take a, a quick break. And when we come back on the, uh, the the flip side, and Danica's already weighed in ahead of the uh, the U.S. Grand Prix and saying that uh, she wants to see an American driver in F1 and uh, will reveal who her pick is to, to make it to, to the, well, the, the bigger leagues, I suppose. I mean, uh, compared to where he is already. And we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right, and welcome back to the podcast. It is always up to speed with Formula One. Mark and Mark Daly and Hamilton talking about the latest F1 news. And we're going to jump into the mailbag in a, a little while here. We've been collecting the tweets and the emails, and we got some really good ones that we want to talk about here in a little bit. Anyways, uh, before the break, uh, I just mentioned, and we uh, just talked uh, quite a bit about uh, Danica Patrick, legendary uh, personality and racing driver in the booth this weekend for the U.S. Grand Prix. And Danica was saying uh, just the other day, that she really wants to see a U.S. driver in Formula One. And this is maybe not a surprise because this is the same fellow that was, uh, I think, tapped on the shoulder uh, or given Mario Andretti's uh, blessing uh, just a couple of months ago. And that is IndyCar star Colton Herta. What do you think of this, uh, Mark? 
I like this one. And I've become a big fan of Colton Herta, less, I think, because of his on-track performance, which is very, very strong. But yeah. rather, I just like his personality. He's a, he's a laid-back, fun California kid. I yeah. think he embodies so much of America in his his personality. He's he's approachable. He's accessible. He works hard on the track. He's ultra racy. I think he would be a great kid. And the other linkage, which kind of ties into the story that you and I were speaking to a couple of minutes ago, is the fact that he's racing for Andretti Auto Sports in mm-hmm. the IndyCar series. So there's already a linkage there. So I think when I was alluding to a couple of moments ago, which is, hey, possibly the reason that Sauber Alfa Romeo haven't announced their second driver is part of the purchase agreement could be contingent on them having a say on the seat. Now, of course, there's all kinds of obstacles to overcome in terms of getting Colton his super license and getting him some Formula One reps, but I think he would be a great kid. Now, that said, he's young. He's the youngest IndyCar driver to ever win a race. He's only 18, 19 years old. Even if he continued to mature and get reps in IndyCar for another year or two, he's still going to enter Formula One at an incredibly young age if that's the path he wants to pursue but I think he would be a great fit for F1 and he would be a marketing bonanza for Liberty and whatever team he ultimately ends up landing with. Well I'm going to just sort of step in here Mark because uh, surprisingly Colton is a little bit older than you actually uh, may have uh, uh, not realized he's actually 21 which yeah so that that kind of uh, I wouldn't say kind of uh, has the clock ticking for him but I think uh, that uh, you know if you want to get into Formula One and that opportunity is there I think it's it's kind of an interesting age because you know he's he's not super young he's not really super old but certainly you know it's it's just like how much time do you want to you know if that opportunity is there do you want to like let that slip through to get some more experience racing an indie car you know I, I think it's a bit of a tough call I think I think most drivers would probably jump at that uh, that that opportunity but certainly uh, not really I, I you know he kind of presents and looks a little bit younger than he actually is I think. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I appreciate you correcting me on air as opposed to afterwards when we get a flurry of flurry of angry <laughs> DMs correcting me. So I appreciate that. But you're right. 18's one thing, 19's another, 2021. Well, you know what? That's the point at which most kids are graduating into Formula One yeah. from Formula Two. And obviously Nicholas Latifi was a bit of an exception because he started so much later and because he was so well, so well financed. And it was still the right fit for Williams at the time, and it continues to appear to be an even better fit because he's developed so significantly this year. But 2021, that's when you need to be looking to make that jump because for every year that you continue to age, there's other kids coming up through the lower formulas that are younger and just as talented and cheaper and potentially even more moldable. So yeah, you're right. 21. Looks like he debuted in Indian. I think most of our listeners probably are are well aware of this, but broke through at the very end of 2018, raced in 2019, won two races last year, raced in 2020 in the abbreviated season, won a race there. This year finished fifth in the championship versus third in 2020, winning three races, including the last two on the calendar. Yeah, interesting, eh? So moving on to the next uh, story, and this I'll let you take this one, Mark, but he's not the only Formula, or sorry, IndyCar driver that's linked to Formula One. And uh, this one is kind of, I wouldn't say it's self-promotion. I mean, there's uh, definitely a a connection already there. So so why don't you uh, take this one, Mark? 
I think this story breaks in a couple of directions. The first is, and, and I'll kind of hit this one off the top, but Arrow McLaren SP IndyCar driver Pato Award says he would be lying if he denied that he had interest in a future switch to Formula One ahead of his upcoming maiden test in Abu Dhabi. And for those of you that don't remember, he and McLaren chief Zach Brown had a bet earlier this year or had an agreement that if he was to win a race in the IndyCar championship this year, he would get a test in a Formula One car. Well, he won a race and Zach Brown is coming through on his commitment. So after the season finale at Abu Dhabi in the middle of December, he's going to get to do a test at that track in a Formula One car. So he's been to Woken. He spent three days in the simulator or he's going to be spending three days in the simulator. He's going to have to go through a seat fit is going to have to be equipped to be a Formula One driver for a couple of days. But when asked, he was very clear that, look, if you ask any open wheel racing driver anywhere in the world, if they wished or dreamed of being in a Formula One car, they would be lying if they said no. And there's obviously a couple of reasons for this, that if you grow up dreaming of being a Formula One driver, if you grow up dreaming of being an open wheel racing car driver, you obviously dream of racing at the highest possible level and Formula mm-hmm. One is that level. That said though, I think what's really interesting about this story is it speaks to and reinforces the reality that there seem to be these emerging interwoven relationships between Formula One and Indy in a way that maybe we haven't seen them before. As we know, McLaren's continue to grow its interest in its investment in the team it's partnered with in Indy for a couple of years. There's been rumors in the past that Ferrari sniffed around joining. There's rumors that Andretti Motorsport or Andretti Autosport is now looking to do the reverse, which is grow their autosport business from Indy into Formula One. And I think this is all really great news because Mm -hmm. it gives Formula One teams the opportunity to cross promote and cross merchandise in the US using teams that race there more regularly. If I'm a Formula One team, it gives me the opportunity to put younger drivers, stash them in a way in a really competitive series, as opposed to losing them into the abyss that is a DTM or Australian supercars. But I think it's an interesting story. And Pato Award, the young Mexican driver, is another tremendous talent that has all the makings potentially of a future F1 star. The challenge once again is there's only 20 seats in F1. Those young F2 drivers always seem to have the upper hand simply because they're more familiar with the tracks. They belong to F1 driver academies, but he is a very talented young driver. Yeah, yeah, it would be cool to to see more people get the opportunity to race in, in Formula One. And I think it was pretty cool the way that um, he, he he talked about it, the opportunity. He said that uh, he's trying to do the perfect job that he can for, uh, you know, in Indy car he wants to give the team uh the championship he wants to help them win the indy 500 but he's he's quite open and honest about it and he's just like uh if the opportunity uh, that uh it was to come up in formula one that uh, he'd absolutely uh, love to to jump at it and take it and of course i i mean that is uh, logical because formula one is still the top uh racing series in the world okay uh moving along so patronus the, uh, the fuel supplier is, uh, well, also Malaysian oil, Gigantopithecus or Gigantosaurus, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Uh, they are a sponsor and a technical partner of uh, Mercedes, and they have been ever since um, uh, Mercedes came back into Formula One way back in 2010, over a decade ago, which is uh, a bit mind-blowing how quickly that has gone. 
anyways, so uh, obviously their branding features prominently anywhere there is Formula One uh, or sorry, Mercedes Formula One cars and their their drivers overalls and anywhere. So it's it's heavily branded. Anyway, so the deal that they've had uh, has been extended several times in the past, and their most current contract, which uh, they signed just a couple of years ago, runs until the end of uh, 2025. So uh, even though that there's a deal in place, there's been some speculation over the, the past uh, week or so that uh, Petronas would actually leave Mercedes at the end of the season and that uh, Mercedes would actually replace them with uh, with Saudi Arabian company uh, Aramco as its title partner from 2022. Too. So, anyways, uh, this is getting a little bit, uh, you know, th- th- there seems like there's some twists and turns all along uh, the way. Anyways, there was a, a, a joint statement uh, released on Monday of this week and uh, saying that, uh, quote, Patronus and Mercedes have been partners since 2010 in a collaborative long-term relationship that is mutually beneficial to both parties. Last year, we extended our partnership for another multi-year cycle, and we are proud to continue working together to deliver cutting-edge performance, end quote. So there you go. So Aramco... Still probably going to feature as, uh, you know, sponsors around the tracks, but maybe not getting to sponsor one of the premier Formula One teams, at least for now. So anyways, there you go. My primary takeaway from this, and I find this a little bit amusing, is this is one of those stories that erupted and caught fire on Twitter, on F1 Twitter over the weekend. And as you start drilling in, it became pretty clear very early that there was absolutely no substance or source for the story. And I'm not criticizing or commenting on the nature of the story, but just rather the fact that there was a quote from somewhere that caught fire and it exploded on internet Twitter. And it caught fire simply because these this partnership with Mercedes has been so strong and it's been dominant throughout their historically strong run here. But What's interesting is the fact that both Patronus and Mercedes had to come out and comment on the status of their relationship in re- in reference to or in defiance to the internet rumors that spread over Twitter. I just I find it funny when something of no substance can catch fire on social media mm-hmm. and that the that the subjects of the rumor have to come out and openly address the fact that there is no substance or truth to the rumor. It's just, it's funny how social media works. And it's just funny that this could be the topic of interest for three or four days over the weekend, when really what we should be talking about is all of the teams landing in Austin for the U.S. Grand Prix. Internet, man, I tell you. All right, uh, moving on to the next one. Um, well, we did have one that uh, is actually addressing the bumps uh, on the track for the Grand Prix this uh, weekend uh, because some of the issues that they've had there uh, with the, the recent uh, MotoGP race. And I'm actually going to bump this story to Thursday's show since uh, we want to get to the mailbag. See what I did there? But before I like we that. Do, I like that. <laughs> clever, right? Uh, groans all around. I can hear it. Uh, we're going to get those angry DMs before we're done tonight. Uh, you know, <laughs> at any rate. Anyways, uh, one, one story I wanted to talk about before we jump into the mailbag is Lando Norris said that openness over mental health is important to help others. And he is, uh, you know, spoke out about it and some of the struggles that, uh, that he's had uh, and specifically early in his uh, Formula One uh, career, you know, specifically coping with the enormous pr- you know, amount of pressure 
pressure that he's had to deal with as a young Formula One driver and uh, everything that that uh, entails. I think this is great. I mean, um, I guess this kind of is a nice way to kind of bring the discussion to full circle. I mean, off the uh, the top of the show, we were talking about how it's good to see Sebastian Vettel using his stature and standing within the sport to to address some of the uh, the, the topics and causes that he feels important. And I think it's great when you have uh, you know somebody like uh, Lando being quite up uh, front and open and frank about uh, you know such an important uh, issue as uh, mental health. I agree. I think the reason there's value in Lando continuing to talk about it is because it continues to be part of the narrative and the conversation. And I think the sad reality is that most people who struggle with mental health don't know they're struggling with mental health, or maybe they suspect, but they're simply too afraid or too scared or too nervous to seek help. And I think it's also important to remember as well that mental health manifests itself in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people in the broader community, I think sometimes the assumption when you talk about mental health is it's depression. Somebody's sad. And for sure, depression is a big part of of mental health. And millions of people legitimately struggle with sometimes debilitating forms of depression. Mm -hmm. But Mental health can manifest itself in so many ways that you can't imagine. And sometimes some of the most capable and successful and high-functioning people that surround you and are in your lives suffer incredibly under crushing, debilitating forms of of mental health. But they learn to develop coping mechanisms and they, they learn to find workarounds and shortcuts and best practices to manage their debilitating mental health conditions or issues. And I think it's really good when Lando Norris talks about it because then you and I are talking about it. And then people sitting at home listening to this podcast or out driving or out walking or out running suddenly start thinking like, you know what, that thing that I've been struggling with since the ninth grade or the eighth grade or since as early as I can remember, maybe I should talk to somebody about that because the worst possible thing that can happen is if you talk to somebody or you talk to your family doctor or you go to a therapist is, you know what, guess what? Maybe you might be able to get help or maybe you're gonna get a little bit of relief because you'll recognize that you're not the only one coping. Yeah. And sometimes people that suffer with a specific type of mental health or a, tip, a specific mental health issue, sometimes force themselves to believe that it's unique and it's specific to them and they're the only one in the world that's suffering in that way. And as a result, nobody can help them. You can get help and people want to help you. It's just, it's taking that first step and reaching out for help. And that's not always a healthcare professional. It's sometimes just talking to a friend or a colleague or a coworker um, and initiating that journey. And like we've said before, you, me, we're both open, reach out at any time. I promise you, if you reach out, I'll pick up the phone and I will call you and we can have a conversation. Yeah, totally. You know, and this is something that's important to me because anxiety and depression is something that I've dealt with and, and lived through and it sucks. And, you know, I'm in a much better place now, but it is tough. And sometimes just making that first step to, to, to getting help is it's a difficult thing to do. And it's, 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 it's a, it's a very, very rough thing to deal with. Anyways, let's uh, move along now. Let's take a a quick break here. We'll come back and we'll talk. uh, Well, actually, we're going to not talk about anything. We're going to address all the uh, the emails and uh, and, and tweets that we have. So we're going to talk. We're just not going to talk about the news. We'll talk about the emails and we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back.
All right. Well, welcome back. I, I feel like that we should have like some sort of like um, we, we've got a MotoGP uh, corner jingle, which is gathering cobwebs and dust here. In the corner, <laughs> considering you, you've kind of let us down here the last uh, uh, several weeks, but I, I feel like we should have weeks, a, months, months. Yeah, maybe it actually has been months, but uh, we should have like a, a mailbag Monday jingle. So maybe we should uh, should do that at, at some point. So. Why don't we uh, jump into the, let, let's go to Twitter first of all, because we always know that Twitter's an awesome, happy place that nothing bad ever happens there. I'm, oh, I'm yeah. being totally, except in, in our community, because uh, F1 fans are the greatest, specifically our community around this podcast. Yep. So first one is from Aaron Lewis. Uh, Aaron's question is, why does, uh, doesn't F1 have relegation like they have in uh, European soccer? Why doesn't the FIA have their own streaming surface for all the FIA races? I know Liberty owns F1 and their streaming rights, but it just makes more sense to have an overall streaming surface, a service for multiple races, uh, race types, and they could use the revenue sharing like the MLB, Major League Baseball, uses thanks up, uh, thank you, keep up the good work, Mark Squared. So relegation like they have in European soccer, that would be kind of interesting and it would kind of suck if you were Williams or McLaren <laughs> and some of the other teams. I mean, especially how far and how quickly they fell off and fell down into the the, the abyss and are slowly clawing their way back. If you're Williams and uh, if you're McLaren, actually winning some races and uh, and making you know some good positive news that that is something I've never actually thought about. But I guess uh, because um, you know it, it the, the sport just isn't structured that way, and it would be maybe disincentivizing for teams if there was that sort of financial uh, penalty. I mean, it'd be much, uh, you know, as much as you might say, hate the Dallas Cowboys. If you're Jerry Jones and your team gets relegated because you went two and 14 over the years, you know, you'd be very, you know, fr- you know, angry that your team has now been relegated to NFL too. And I would think that, uh, or whatever it could be, I think that'd be very much like, uh, you know, CFL, CFL right. Um, and then as far as the streaming service for, for FI race, I know that F1 TV Pro or just F1 TV in general is a huge leap forward. I mean, admittedly, I think they've got a long way to go, but it is interesting too, because I mean, if you want to watch something like Le Mans or you want to watch F2 or Formula One, it doesn't matter what it is that um, anything FIA sanctioned, it, it's not always easy to find or, or DTM, whatever the, you know, the, whatever you're searching for. But I don't know if it's a licensing thing, maybe it's a logistical thing, maybe it's all of the above, but I, I would just be happy if they could iron out all the the, the wrinkles that they have with uh, the streaming service for Formula One as it is right now. I mean, they've made a good start. I'd love to, to see them finally fill out that historical archive and just, uh, you know, have things like native um, Apple TV apps and just just make it a little bit, I mean, I mean it's getting close, but it still isn't completely seamless in terms of like the, the the viewing experience what do you think yeah i agree i think the f1 tv pro app has grown exponentially in terms of its functionality and its stability from early last year where it crashed multiple times during the first few races and you missed entire chunks of grand prix it's it's gotten better i do like the concept of having 
a singular app or app ecosystem that captures multiple race series. Admittedly, I'm not at a place in my life where I could enjoy more than one championship at a time. So I'm content with just F1, but I get it. I like the idea of being able to bring them all into a single platform because it would increase exposure, it would give people an opportunity to see race series they might not otherwise go and see. In response to Aaron's first question, I'll make this quick. It's never going to happen and it's never going to happen because the only way it could is if they restructured the championship. All of the teams would have to agree in the future Concord agreement to some form of relegation. Why would any existing team ever sign up for it? It's the same reason it would never happen in the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, or the NFL. You could never incentivize those teams to sign up for a championship or structure the leagues in such a way that they could risk being relegated because if you're relegated, well, your gate revenue is going to collapse, your TV mm-hmm. revenue is going to collapse, and your sponsorship revenue is going to collapse. The same thing would happen in 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 Formula One. And let's be very clear that a lot of the teams in F1 don't make money today. None of the teams in Formula Two or Formula Three make money. They are marketing exercises. They're heavily subsidized by the teams in Formula One. They don't make a ton of money. So if I'm Williams or I'm Haas and I risk being uh, being relegated, well, my entire existence could disappear. And then on the flip side, if I'm a Formula Two team that's getting promoted, well, I could never be competitive simply because I don't have the resources, the people, capital, or the infrastructure structure to compete with a team that's established in the championship. To your earlier point, you would have to completely restructure not just Formula One, but Formula Two and Formula Three in such a way that all the teams are much more consistently structured. And that's never going to happen. Formula Ferrari will never sign up for a championship where one bad season could bounce them into a lower formula. Yeah, oh, that would uh, literally see the entire motorsport world implode if that ever happened to a Ferrari. But a great question. Next one comes uh, from Polly, and uh, the question is, what tips can you give a new podcaster, and what's the hardest uh, part about doing a podcast? Thanks for doing such a great show every single week. Well, thank you for those kinds of words, uh, Polly. Hardest thing about doing a podcast every week is sitting down with Mark Hamill. I mean, no. <laughs> I we're mean, on the air. <laughs> no, you know, when it comes to doing a podcast, it's just really you know committing to it and saying that I'm going to do a show that comes out monthly, weekly, every two weeks, or whatever it is, whatever works for you stick to that schedule also know what you're talking about it doesn't matter if you're talking about formula one or basket weaving or politics just know your subject and then when it when it comes down to things like uh, just audio equipment it doesn't need to be fancy i mean you can get a really decent mic for a you know really relatively inexpensively nowadays and you can get a recording software that is either you know like GarageBand if you have a Mac I mean there's uh, you know plenty of uh, like freeware shareware out there that that's good not loaded with uh, with viruses and it's just uh, learning a little bit of the production side I mean you can uh, get uh, royalty free uh, music where you don't have to you know be like some huge uber rich uh, you know media corporation so you can uh, have the, the the rights to Lady Gaga or whatever right <laughs> for your theme music uh so you know you can do it uh, quite uh, quite modestly and it's just um, and the thing is just to practice you know when 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 i first got back into podcasting almost a decade ago now my friend and i jorge we sat down and we probably recorded half a dozen episodes that we never released 
we, we just did them. We went through the whole process. We listened to them and we, we realized how terrible we were. And then eventually we got to the point after doing four or five, whatever it was, we, we actually decided to uh, release one. And then from, from that point, uh, there was no looking back. It actually was better received than we ever thought it would be. And it was started, uh, you know, a, a wonderful journey that uh, that he and I went on for a number of years and then uh, started this parallel project. And, you know, th- this has become an equally enjoyable and rewarding and, uh, you know, fun experience that you and I are now on, which is uh, which is awesome. I think the only feedback and I think everything you said is totally valid in terms of the gear. And again, you don't have to spend a ton of money, but having a good mic and they cost about 100 bucks, having a good headset. Yep. Lots of experimentation, license your music, but audio quality makes a big difference because there are so many professionally produced podcasts out there that if somebody gives your podcast a try and there's popping and there's buzzing and there's hissing and it's clearly been recorded through a laptop microphone, your listeners are going to say, clearly this person didn't make an effort, so why should I try? So you don't Mm -hmm. have to spend a lot of money, but you do have to dial in your audio quality. And if people give you feedback that is problematic, you got to listen to them and adjust accordingly. I think the only other feedback that I would have is don't get discouraged. I think sometimes people look at the immediate success of podcasts like Caller Daddy, which goes from, you know what, a couple listeners to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of listeners within a couple of months. Sometimes that happens. For the millions of other podcasts, that's not what happens. So don't get discouraged. Set yourself mm-hmm. some reasonable targets and be happy when you hit them. Look, you know what, after a month, I want to get 50 downloads with 60% consumption. After six months, I want to be at 100 downloads downloads. After a year, I want to be at 200 downloads, but be, be reasonable because if you go in there with expectations that you're going to get a thousand downloads after your first episode, you are going to be crushingly disappointed. You're going to be discouraged. And then you're going to produce podcasts less frequently, which is only going to kill the algorithms and the likelihood that you're going to be able to build momentum. And I remember one of the things that I learned the first time around with my last F1 podcast was you know what? I had these high expectations that, hey, we're going to do X number. And you know what? It took two years to get to a thousand downloads per episode. Yeah. And I was just crushed. Like I I was do- I felt like I was doing everything in the world, but I couldn't get there. And it's funny because early on, I was like, I'm going to be happy with a hundred. I'm like, I would be thrilled with 500, but I get to a thousand and I'm like, well, that's not good enough. I need 10,000. But mm-hmm. we're in a position now where this show does numbers that are just astronomical compared to anything I could ever have imagined years ago. And we know, and this is a a bit of a humble flex, but we know we're probably the second biggest North American-based podcast. But what I do now is we don't look at the numbers. We just dial in, we do a great show, and we engage with the audience. And that's enough. If you look at the numbers and if you look at the analytics, you're going to become paralyzed because you're going to be looking at something that you really don't have a lot of control over if you're A, engaging with your audience, and you're two, putting in a great show every week on a consistent basis. Yeah, exactly. And then commit to a minimum amount of time, six months or a year or something, and then get out there and promote it uh, on on social media, be it Twitter, Facebook, whatever your your preferred, uh, you know, uh, social media platform is. But uh, another great uh, question. Next one comes from uh, Janice Porter. uh, And Janice's uh, question and comment is, we hear about uh, lots about Hamilton's family, quote, uh, or in brackets, self-promotion, as he says, jokingly, but never anything about dailies uh, does daily have uh, kids as well even though i'm in the uk you are my favorite f1 podcast gen tts 
Yeah, so I do have kids. I have three kids, uh, two sons and a daughter. The daughter's in, in the middle. And uh, yeah, they're great. Uh, they're they're all awesome kids. Uh, my my oldest uh, just went into to grade eight. Uh, my, my daughter just went into middle school. We put them in French immersion because we thought that would be a good academic uh, challenge. And they, they seem to be doing that, uh, doing pretty good there. And my youngest son just went into uh, to grade one. And um, yeah, they're all great kids, all very active. Uh, my son just uh, started uh, sailing, uh, racing on a, on a sailing team uh, this year. My daughter is a competitive cheerleader, which she's been doing for a couple of years, which uh, she loves. And my youngest son, he loves Transformers and superheroes and everything awesome that like six-year-olds love. And, you know, I'm a six-year-old at heart, so I just uh, love all that stuff uh, too. So that <laughs> thanks for that uh, one, Jet. Uh, next one is from the and I, I no. twee twee. Okay, thank you. I was going to mispronounce it and apologize uh, ahead of time. So thanks for for saving me there. So the um, the question is, can you kindly recommend uh, some F1 themed Christmas gifts with the uh, Christmas season fast approaching? My boyfriend and I fell in love with F1 Gen TTS, and I'd love to keep his gifts on brand. Great show, and keep up the great work. So, um, you know, caveat here is, uh, you know, if you think that you're going to get away and spend okay, hundred bucks on Formula One themed Christmas presents, you know double that or at least you know that because that's going to get up to say 250 uh really quickly uh you know if uh, you're you're north america i mean if it's euros or pounds or whatever i mean it's uh you know it's all going to be relative uh but i mean there's some great things out there um i i'm a hat guy so i always like to get um you know i i don't buy an f1 hat every year i i have to get select ones one that really blows me away that uh, it becomes a must-have and i probably have i don't know half a dozen seven eight in in the collection going back probably 15 20 years or so so maybe not every year every couple of years but they have to stand out uh, i mean the uh, the the scale models uh, you know the, i guess what are they 118 scale they're awesome extremely detailed but they can get a little bit pricey uh there's some other cool merch out there you know some the, the things that i really like um and I don't have any, but uh, some things uh, and I really regret I didn't get it uh, when I was at uh, the Spanish Grand Prix a couple of years ago was like a quarter zip uh, Mercedes. Um, uh, like it was like not really a fleece top, a sweater, but it was really cool. It had all the, you know, the logos on it and everything was black with that sort of uh, minty green Patronus uh, color on there, which uh, was really, really awesome. Things like that. I mean, if you want to go uh, in, you know, even to another level, you can go, uh, you know, to authentic car parts, which I know you have uh, something close close at hand but again if you're looking for a little widget or uh, you know a barge board or something like that I mean that can be big big uh, money but I mean you can still pick up some small bits and pieces for a couple of hundred bucks uh, here and there and of course video games F1 uh, the the official video game is relatively uh, you know I, I don't think it's all that expensive uh, what does it run about maybe 75 bucks Canadian so maybe what about 60 65 US and maybe roughly the same in, in pounds or euros so you know that's quite affordable if uh, gaming's uh, your thing anything to add there mark uh, just a couple of things. One, uh, obviously, Race Weekend Magazine, a subscription for 100 bucks for four coffee table-sized issues without advertisements. Yes, that is a, a no-brainer. Yep. 
And for those of you that don't know, which is probably everyone because we've never talked about this before, we may or may not be in negotiations to rebrand our studio as the Race Weekend Studios. So stay tuned for that. And then I think the only other piece too is F1 TV Pro subscription. I think that's a yep. great gift. Both of you can enjoy that. And then finally, there's a local artist in our neck of the woods called David Tires, and he does some absolutely beautiful Stunning. Formula One yeah. prints. I'll tweet out his work, but I would highly, highly recommend you take a look at that. And then just a, a comment on what you said a couple of minutes ago, less related to the question, but quarter zip fleece. Tell me you're a dad without telling me you're a dad. <laughs> if that gets you excited, a quarter zip fleece. You know, I, I yeah, no, no, no further comment to add there. I, you know, I, I am guilty as a charged. <laughs> okay. Next one comes from uh, William Louis. Uh, I saw your photography on Instagram after you kept talking about it on the podcast and it's amazing. Can you share your secrets and your gear? Any best practices for shooting at the track? You and shift F1 are my favorite podcasts, period. Awesome. Uh, thanks, William. So take it away, sir. Yeah, thank you for the question. I love this question. And for those of you that don't know, which is probably nobody because I talk about this all the time, I absolutely adore Formula One photography and I've had the opportunity to shoot now at a couple of tracks. I think the, the first thing to understand is that if you're planning to go to a track and shoot uh, photography-wise, Make sure you know whether the track will allow you to bring in your gear in advance. I've been delighted in the past, and I've also been greatly disappointed when I get to the gates and I can't or can bring in your gear. So know in advance. The good news is, for a lot of our listeners in the U.S., Coda allows you to bring in all your gear. They didn't in 2012. There was a huge backlash you can now. Silverstone you can, Belgium you can, Spain you can, France you can. So most of the Western European tracks. So the good news is you can bring in all your gear. What I would recommend is spend a lot of time looking at the track on Google Street View, get a sense of the lay of the land, understand where you can go. If you've got really great seats in the grandstand, you can shoot from there, but just understand that sometimes that can be distracting and uncomfortable for the people sitting around you. My personal recommendation is to scout locations on Google Street View and head to them in advance. And typically I'm talking about general admission areas because depending on the track, sometimes you can get some absolutely fantastic non-obstructed views of the track from general admission areas. So for me, typically what I would do is I would be there super early on the day of Saturday. So typically I wouldn't shoot during the race because I want to watch the race, but typically I'll shoot on Saturday. So I'm able to shoot free practice three and qualifying. So typically I would locate, I would scout a really great location, an unobstructed view location from the general admission area. I get there a couple of hours early. I'm the first one in the gates. I hide tail it to the location. And then once I'm there, I stake out my spot. The keys to be successful are one, have a camera with the fastest memory card you can, because you're going to shoot as fast as that camera possibly can. If you have a slow memory card, it's going to cut down on the number of shots you're going to be able to take. Take a monopod because you will be exhausted after mm -hmm. holding a big lens, a big zoom for a couple of hours. Take the longest lens you can. Now, my recommendation here is key. The best lenses for photography at a sporting event like Formula One is a fast prime or a fast zoom. They are incredibly expensive. So consider renting one because you probably won't use it a lot outside of Formula One. Buy a great body, 
rent a fast zoom. That's probably the most economical way to do it. And like I said, make sure you have a monopod. I've often taken my laptop so I can actually look at photos on the go to make sure I've dialed in my settings, my exposure, my shutter speed quickly enough. And then the other benefit of getting there early too is you can shoot for some of the support series to dial in and get ready for free practice three. So those would probably be my recommendation. And then the only other thing I would recommend is you can actually practice at home on the street, go to a busy intersection, go to the highway, pan, take shots. And that's the other cool thing you can try as well is panning. Take a UV filter, slow down that shutter speed and practice panning, but do that before you get to the track because it can be a acquired art and something that you need to practice and get that muscle memory in. But mm-hmm. yeah, that's just some of my best practices, but have fun, have fun. Awesome, awesome. Okay, uh, next one comes from uh, Matt the Captain. This one's cool. Solution to sprint qualifying. Friday qualifying sets the GP grid. It sets a reverse grid for the sprint. Top five in the sprint gets points. Now it's a standalone, but also gives us the reverse grid we all want without hurting the Grand Prix on Sunday. I think there's something to this. I like it. Do you like the idea? So I'm going to be honest, full disclosure, people talk about reverse grid all the time. I hate it. I even hate in the NBA that there's a draft lottery. I don't like the fact that we reward (laughs) poor performance. I hate the fact that a team like the Philadelphia 76ers, and I apologize to our new friend, um, our new friend at Race Weekend Magazine for this. I'm not going to say his name because I don't want to put him on blast, but I hate the fact that the Philadelphia 76ers were rewarded for being so intentionally <laughs> terrible for so long. You know what? If you're a great team and you win a championship, why should you be punished in the NBA draft? And I get why they do it for parody, all those kind of things. But I just hate the fact that there could be a race for points that penalizes teams that do especially well. So I don't like it. I get, so this isn't a criticism of the question because I think it's an awesome question. I just want to be clear that my opinion on reverse grids, even though I am in the absolute minority is I just don't like them. I would love to hear your opinion because you and I haven't talked about this before. Yeah, I think this is an interesting one because uh, I, I think that we do need to spice up like the sprint race on sa- Saturday. I mean, uh, that I, I agree think with. We're, we're all done with the, the the whole concept of calling it uh, sprint qualifying because it's not qualifying as a sprint race. And I think that the, there, there has to be some way to really incentivize the drivers to go out there and try and get you know get a good result because it, it seems that you know we've seen what sprint qualifying or sprint sessions that are what about like between 15 and 20 laps in length so you know it, it seems after you get to about like lap 10 it sort of gets really sedate it gets really sleepy and everybody's just uh, trying to get around without damaging the car driving into one another and it very quickly becomes uh, boring so why I you know I I'm not really a big fan of the whole concept of reverse grids, but this I find uh, you know quite intriguing because I think it really is a bit of a different twist to what we've seen before, where we have the reverse grid to say start the Grand Prix, which you know I, I'm totally against. But if you have uh, say the you you take Friday qualifying and you use that for to to set the grid for Saturday, but also to the, to set the race for uh, or sorry the set the grid for Sunday, but also to set the 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 the, the grid for the the sprint race on saturday i think that's fascinating as well and i like the idea flip it to the back so say lewis or max qualifies on pole so sure they got the pole on sunday but if you're starting at the back of the grid on saturday maybe instead of being whatever 30 percent, maybe you make it closer to say 40 45 50 percent of race distance 
put the contenders at the back and then you know especially in a close championship you get into later in the year those points become a lot more valuable i mean you you couldn't tell me that we're going to see sprint qualifying here in uh, in a couple of weeks in brazil right that Max and Lewis wouldn't be going all out as, as hard as they could, you know, relative to one another. I guess the the, the one wrinkle in that one is that if uh, the the two say, or you know, however drivers might be involved in a championship battle, if uh, one of them or they just decide, you know, we're not going to risk it, we're just going to sit at the back and let somebody else go for the points, then maybe that's the bit of the, you know, the uh, the well, the asterisk to, to that. But I think I think it's got some there, there's some merit to it for sure. Mark, you just made a really great point, which is. We've talked a lot this year about the approach, the the psychological, philosophical, tactical approach that teams have had to the sprint qualifying sessions in the sense that, look, why are we going to go toe-to-toe, wheel-to-wheel in these events? There's minimal points available. Ultimately, we could wreck our car, have... Uh, significantly impact the cost cap, Mm -hmm. put our mechanics in a position where they're going to be up all night for fighting curfew to get this car ready for Sunday. You know, what if we damage the gearbox? What if we damage the power unit? We've got to swap it out. We take a penalty. There's, There's a lot of negatives, I think, from a team's perspective, simply because there's so few points in in the balance i wonder now how how mercedes and red bull in particular approach sprint qualifying in brazil because on the one hand they're only separated by a couple of points and it could be it could be that the championship swings around it could be that they're tied it could be that they're one or two points aside we could go into brazil that sprint qualifying weekend and they could be head to head do you then go all out in sprint qualifying know that that all of those points matter and that, you know, if you secure those three points for finishing at the front in sprint qualifying, or do you look at it like, look, we have nothing to gain and everything to lose in sprint qualifying. If I'm Mercedes, do I make the decision that, look, we're just going to hang back. We are not going to fight wheel to wheel. We're going to let somebody else take those points because if Hamilton gets tangled up and we damage his car, or he gets a damaged gearbox. Mm-hmm. Do we compromise the Grand Prix the next day where potentially we could score 25 points? I, I just think to your earlier point, they haven't they haven't built enough incentive into sprint qualifying to make it meaningful. Like you and I talk about every point matters, but you know, competing in sprint qualifying in Brazil with the championship this close could be more risky than it could propose or pose a reward. Do, yep. do you know what I mean? I Am I making sense? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. But the thing that I like about this tweet is that I, I think it's got us uh, talking and thinking about um, a sprint qualifying in a completely different way compared to where we were, you know, even at the beginning of this uh, discussion, you know, especially compared to where we were a month ago when we've been uh, discussing it. And I think this is the exactly the sort of mentality that the, this, the, the kind of thought process that Formula One is going to need to do to really really find like that um you know that 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 perfect mix that that perfect balance to get the sprint qualifying correct so i think it's i I think it's a great observation hey uh let's take a quick break one final break here when we come back with a couple really good uh, emails so we'll get to those in just a moment so don't go away we'll be right back All right. Well, welcome back to the show. Last segment here, but uh, still some really good things to talk about. This is one that we talked about uh, briefly, The uh, I think, on the last show. This is from Thomas Andre Riesla. Hello, Mark and Mark. I have some pers- uh, 
sorry, perspectives as a Generation DTS viewer that I hoped you guys could comment on. Just as a bit of a context, I'm an electrical engineer that is uh, currently working with defense technology and has a lot of enthusiasm for the technical aspects of the sport. Seeing the innovations and experiments that teams have brought to the tracks over the years is really scratching an itch that I never knew I had. As old school F1 fans are stuck in uh, their ways, my question, why are people opposed to F1 going fully electric? My impression of Formula One is that they should always adopt the newest and best technology available. If fully electric powertrains were faster, lighter, more durable, etc., would you oppose F1 going that route? Any new and better technology that is being skipped just for uh, any uh, other reason than safety feels to me like a, a mistake. At the end of the day, I'm stuck feeling like people just want ICE, internal combustion engine, for political or nostalgic reason when we could have stuff like that uh, will be better and more cost effective. So great questions, some great observations. I think that uh, there's a lot to, to unpack here. And I think that Thomas is touching on a couple of good things, um, you know, important things that I think he's noticed that uh, some people I think are definitely... Uh, uh, I guess, not in favor of dumping the internal combustion engines in whatever form, either be it as a full internal uh, normally aspirated engine or the turbo hybrid or whatever, whatever form that internal combustion engine takes uh, for political or nostalgic reasons, as he states. And I, I think there is a certain segment of uh, fans, but I, I don't, I'm not fully opposed to Formula One going fully electric. My only concern is that when and if they do, that they do it too soon and that the, the electric power units that they have available to them do not have the same amount of power output that we currently see with regardless if it's a uh, you know the, the the turbo hybrid or a turbo engine whatever you know a normally aspirated engine that there would be a big dip in uh, in performance and that's why i think we're seeing and i think that's way be, maybe why some people might interpret it as formula one kicking the can down the road by adopting these um you know or, or maybe I don't want to say adopting just yet, but maybe taking their time in defining what the next generation of Formula One engines are looking like, because I think it's going to be a bridge uh, sort of technology. I think it's going to be a temporary solution that may be in place. I, I don't think it's going to be for a couple of years. I think that it might be an engine formula that we see for another decade or something like that. I wouldn't be surprised if it is, uh, you know, like a, a mid to long term uh, commitment. And then at that point, I, I, I'm thinking that that at some point, the electric engine technology will just sort of catch up and then it'll just be seamlessly integrated into Formula One because logically and sensibly, it just becomes the the, the, the way to go. But for the meantime, I think that, uh, that uh, internal combustion engines in the turbo hybrid uh, uh, format and these, uh, you know, these new hybrid and, uh, you know, exotic fuels are the way forward. And I think that's where they're going to go. It's a really great question, and it's timely, one, because we're in the midst of the teams and the sport and the FIA coming to an agreement on what the engine formula is going to look like from either 2025 or 2026 and beyond, and we know there's still going to be an internal combustion engine. Yep. We know that's going to be complemented by a turbocharger. We know there's going to be some form of 
hybrid electrification, which is going to be much greater. And Formula One's very excited to tell us all about how they're going to be using much more sustainable e-fuels, which come from all sorts of magical carbon capture devices that we're not actually using today. <laughs> but I think you and I have kind of hit it on the on the nail a couple of times when really what we're going to see in 2025 is F1 kicking the can down the road. I'm now of the mindset that I'm all in on electrification. I just don't think that institutionally F1 is there yet, or they are, but they're not ready to say it yet. And we've heard from Ross Braun many, many times that, and he's right, that the entire globe isn't going to shift to electrification anytime soon. And there's some types of vehicles that will probably continue to have an internal combustion engine for the rest of our lifetimes, whether that's container trucks or container ships or airplanes, there's always going to be a place for internal combustion engines. And hopefully we find a way to get synthetic fuels or e-fuels into those vehicles to reduce the carbon carbon output. But ultimately, there seems to be an institutional bias or nostalgic value in or placed into the internal combustion engine. My hope is that what we're seeing in 2025 really is a bridge and that behind closed doors, Liberty and the FIA are talking with the teams and saying, hey, look, we're giving you a five or six year runway with a engine formula that's relatively similar to what we're doing today. But hey, come 2035, we're going all electric. And maybe they're not ready to announce that publicly because I think the risk is that, hey, if you announce we are going fully electric, that that opens up a whole bunch of questions that they're not ready to answer yet, which is how are they going to produce a thousand horsepower? How yeah. are they going to produce a thousand foot pounds of torque? How heavy are they? What are the battery packs going to look like? Are they safe to drive at 360 kilometers an hour? What if there's a collision? What if the battery ignites? Where are you going to get the batteries from? There's all sorts of questions that they're not ready to answer. So my suspicion is, is exactly what you said, which is the engine, the formula that we're going to see in 2025 or 2026 is we're kicking the can down the road because we're not ready yet. We don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the expertise. We don't have the personnel to develop an engine formula that's fully electric for 2025. Mm -hmm. But we're going to start working on a new formula behind closed doors because yeah. he's absolutely right. Come 2035, 2020, or 2040, when every single passenger car and every single dealer lot in North America and and uh, Eastern Asia and and throughout Western Europe is fully electric, I think it's going to be a tough sell that... F1 still running some form of internal combustion engine. So I think it's coming. I don't think there's any opposition behind closed doors. I think it's partly marketing, partly political, partly strategic, but mm -hmm. I'm sure they're working on it behind closed doors and good for them because obviously the internal combustion engine in a passenger car and a sports car is not going to be the future, especially when you consider how many fully electric sports cars are available from yep. dealers today. And and all there'll be significantly more available in five years when F1 will just be debuting its latest iteration of the internal combustion yeah, engine. Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, I think the one thing that uh, they're, they're getting around is exactly a lot of the technical issues, uh, li like you mentioned. I, I mean, can you imagine that the batteries uh, that they need to power these cars and deliver all these things, you know, like the 1,000-horsepower uh, engine, but the batteries weigh 1,800 pounds or something? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like, it would be like driving a dump truck around there because, you know, the, the car would be so 
yeah would be so difficult to handle so i think there are there there are a long way to being able to replicate the performance and handling in these cars with an electric engine so it'll and come. don't forget don't forget that it was only a few years ago in formula e that the drivers had to swap cars yeah, halfway exactly. through a race because the battery packs weren't strong enough and that was not producing anywhere near what a formula one car produces in terms of power yeah yeah they'll get there eventually but uh, it, it might take a little bit longer than uh, you know we might be uh, expecting awesome email okay next one comes from Fu Bear Chu hello to both of you I have two questions about uh, Max Verstappen on his career and recent uh, performance at Sochi this is a bit of an uh, old email uh, apologies for that but anyway so it was a good one nonetheless I'm a Max fan though uh, admittedly I cannot uh, root for Red Bull until Marco retires or Max moves teams it's tough uh, for me I have the utmost respect for Max as a driver and I don't root uh, for anything bad to happen uh, to him I enjoy watching him race, and he's one of, if not the best, on the grid. Lewis fans will probably uh, object to that one, but uh, that's all uh, you know, subjective. Um, so the first question is, how impressive really was Max's performance at Sochi? Was he, uh, he always has half the grid moving out of his way because uh, the team by team, their fight is not with Red Bull. Overtaking isn't easy, but uh, nobody challenges you either. Is it really amazing that he flew up the grid, especially with screen door Bottas happy to play the midfield game second point uh, has max's career been a disappointment so far he's now seven season in and hasn't won a single f1 championship wasn't more expected of him by now okay so first question i i don't know if um you know i don't know if i necessarily agree with the you know their fight is not with red bull i think that uh, the fact is max has one of if not the best car on the grid and i think there's very little difference in terms of uh, performance uh, uh, between the mercedes and the and the Red Bull, I think that gap has uh, really narrowed uh, over the course of the season. He was just, you know, that much better than everybody else. He had the better car and just uh, really carved his way up uh, through the uh, through the race order. But let, let's be fair. I mean, he was probably looking at maybe a top five finish had we not seen that uh, you know that downpour and uh, he just really benefited uh, that uh, that that he just didn't get caught up in, in any of the carnage I think that uh, that uh, podium finish that second place that he had was uh, it looked awesome on paper I mean if you look at that five ten years down the road and you never watched that race and even if you did I mean it was it looks extremely impressive but I, I think that if he'd finished, uh, you know, say top five and maybe fifth, sixth, I think he would have been extremely happy with that because it would have limited the the amount of points he was giving away to Lewis. But the rain really turned everything upside down. I mean, just to ask uh, Lando. And then to, to the second point, I'll answer both of these and I'll let, then I'll let you uh, respond, Mark. And the, the second point is Max's uh, career been a dis- disappointment after seven seasons. And uh, the fact he hasn't won a championship, I would say no, because we have to remember Max entered the sport very very young and was promoted you know pretty quickly from Toro Rosso to uh, to 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 Red Bull at the expense of uh, Danny Kvyat promptly wins his first race at uh, Spain in 2016 i mean that was obviously uh, you know, benefited uh, because of uh, uh, Lewis and uh, Nico Rosberg taking each other out at turn three and both ending up in the gravel in that, uh, you know, another one of uh, 
many infamous comings together that those two had uh, over the years, but I, I don't think so. I mean, he didn't have a car that was a, a championship uh, contender until this year. And let's uh, not forget, I mean, uh, he was also learning a lot. I mean, he has a, obviously a lot of natural talent, but uh, two things I think that he had to refine and, and hone that uh, talent and skill. And then also he needed the car to deliver him a championship. And whether or not he wins one this year, that remains to be seen. But I think that uh, whatever comes down to it'll be a very very small margin to whoever wins this championship and and max definitely has the car you know would it be a disappointment uh for him sure but i think that um i think he's done as good as he can with what he's had in his career so far and i think you've summed it up perfectly i i would never argue or debate that his career has anything has been anything but successful. He came in extremely young. He won his first race with the senior team, Red Bull, in 2016 at Spain. And again, there are some mitigating circumstances that put him in the position to win that race. But that said, under intense pressure from the rest of the field, he hung on at an incredibly young age to win a Grand Prix. I think this is one of those circumstances as well that you're right. He He's never had a car as competitive as this one. And I think if he'd had this car with this power unit since 2016 and he'd not won a championship, I think we could probably reflect back and say, yeah, you know what? His team, Red Bull, um, Christian Horner, they put him in a position to win a championship for five or six consecutive years and he could never come through. That's a disappointment. I think we could make the debate that, hey, was Sebastian Vettel a disappointment at Ferrari? I think that's a very real conversation, but maybe one for another day. But I think the other consideration here too is timing was just bad. And we see this in all of North American major professional sports, right? You look at the fact that Carl Malone and John Stockton never won a title. They probably do, if not for the dominance that was Michael Jordan's Bulls. They they potentially could have won too. And you talk about George Call's 1996 Seattle Supersonics. That team won 60 games in a season, year after year after year. And in any other era, maybe they win multiple championships, but they make the finals once and they they lose in sixth. So sometimes timing's just bad. Mm-hmm. And in Max's case, he entered the sport right at the peak of one of the most dominant runs in the history of the championship, which of course is the 2014 turbo hybrid era Mercedes AMG team. So timing was just bad. And I think 2022 is exciting because it almost completely resets the sport. We know the power units aren't going to change, but they're going to be locked in. And you could make an argument that the Honda power unit and the Mercedes power unit are awfully close in terms of in terms of performance at this point. So it's a good time for them to be locked in. But 2022 kind of resets the sport and it maybe favors Max. Maybe it doesn't. But ultimately, his timing was just bad. And it's obviously no fault of his, but it's tough to come into a sport where Lewis Hamilton's at his peak and a team like Mercedes is at its absolute peak as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, when you look at Max now, it really seems like he's been around forever. And I mean, you know, which is crazy to say for a guy that is still uh, so young, but his time will come. I mean, he's obviously a championship caliber driver. He's got the car, whether or not that uh, pays off for him this year and then next year, all bets are off until we know who's 
built what and how it matches up against uh, everyone else. Okay, uh, next email comes from uh, Devin Rance. Uh, got to watch the Schumacher doc today and I can't praise it enough. As a Gen DTS fan, I compared it to Jordan's Last Dance, which we both watched and we loved. So if you got Netflix, definitely check that one out. Anyways, back to Devin's email. He says, I am 32 and wasn't old enough to remember Jordan's Bull or Bulls or Schumacher's Peak. To me, they were both legends. Like Jordan's Wizards years, I can uh, only remember Schumacher's return and only through ESPN. So seeing this one showed me why he was both loved and hated, just like the dance showed with Jordan. As a documentary, it was gold, great or great music, interviews, intense emotions, footage. And while I get uh, you weren't happy with the Senna scene, as a person who only knew he passed from an accident, I don't think they overplayed it. They showed the accident and him getting carried away, and it uh, led the view to feel uh, what the drivers felt. Uh, he's just hurt going to the hospital, and it wasn't that uh, they knew on the podium where the, the doc uh, told the audience it was serious. So if you didn't know the story, it was that way on purpose. Anyway, love the show. Keep it up. You know, I think that's an interesting uh, point of view, and, you know, I, I just, uh, I, you know, we both obviously uh, were quite, I don't want to say... I don't know exactly how to word this, but we were quite um, emotionally touched by that because it, we, we saw that happen yeah, and the, the whole and lived through that. I mean, this is no boasting that oh, we've been around Formula One fans forever and anything like that. But it was, it, I guess you'll you'll experience that documentary and especially that whole scene with Senna at Imola in 1994 uh, and, uh, you know, his death and everything like that completely different because, you know, you either watched it and kind of like went through the experience or like Devin, you've come to it uh, later on and uh, watching it. So I, I guess you're going to react different to, you know, where you come into the story and how it is for you. But, you know, it's interesting uh, to, to, to somebody that uh, has obviously, you know, gone through it and watched it and and, and, and enjoyed it that uh, felt that, you know, we, we thought that it wasn't, uh, it was something they didn't need to show. But to, to somebody that was obviously not as emotionally impacted as both you and I were, felt that they got it just about right and felt like that if they, they didn't overstep the line that where it was distasteful or disrespectful. So I think that's that's an interesting uh, perspective from Devin. This is a great email. So thanks, Devin. And thanks to everybody that reached out via email and Twitter. Whether we agree, whether we disagree, whether we debate, it means a lot when you take the time to send us a note. And, yeah. and I, I apologize, we don't get to all of them. And there was a couple we committed to getting to tonight that we didn't. So don't be disappointed. There's a couple of great questions that we are going to save for next week, including uh, an email from Toby Louisa Ernst about tires that we're going to save for Thursday and a couple of other great things. But just kind of reflecting back on Devin's comment, he's not the only one that's actually shared this comment with me. And to be totally honest, almost everybody wanted to talk to me about this topic. And overwhelmingly, the mm -hmm. sense was that moment had a place because it played into the narrative and the emotional roller coaster that they wanted to the the viewer to to participate in with Schumacher as he was going through those those moments in his life. So I thought that was interesting and perhaps the perspective is different because a lot of the people that were sharing those sentiments weren't watching Formula 1 then and again that's not a flex that's not a humble brag it's just a reflection of the fact that you and I are super freaking old and most of our <laughs> most of our listeners are half our age but I I think it is interesting that you and I 
we reacted differently because we were there in the moment and we remember this, but for a lot of our viewers, this was the first time they were experiencing it and they valued seeing that moment because it helped them participate in the emotional roller coaster through which Michael Schumacher went and was documented in the, the program. You know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I went and watched the, uh, the, the documentary a day or so after it dropped about a month, month and a half ago or whenever it was. And, um, you know, I, I must have, uh, admit that I, like everybody else that's, uh, watched it, uh, really enjoyed it. I found it a very uh, emotional, very visceral experience. And I thought it was very, very well done. But you know, now that I've seen and, and heard a couple of comments, uh, just like Devin's, I really feel like I should go back and watch it again. I'm sure I'd enjoy it uh, just as much, but now having kind of been on that emotional roller coaster, watching it and, and, and kind of lived through and just, um, exactly how they told that Schumacher story and all the, all the different threads that they pulled on, it'd be interesting to go back and watch it again myself and see what my take is now that, uh, not that I'm numbed to it, but, uh, certainly now that, uh, it might might not be as intense as the first time around that uh, perhaps it might have a bit of a, a different take on things. So finally, JJ in Houston. JJ! And, uh, JJ. And uh, the apologies. I think he sent us a, another one recently that we may not have gotten to. So We're such negligent we're, hosts. We're terrible, terrible people. Anyways, JJ's email says, hope you are well. Enjoy the pod as always. Question of pure curiosity. Do you know of any big names or, or celebrities attending CODA? Are there any famous people that you can expect to see at the American Grand Prix or any GP in general? Also, it was great to, to hear Mark H. open up about anxiety the other day on the pod. We, uh, we the listeners, are rooting for you through it all and appreciate your honesty so much. Thanks. So cool. That's awesome. Uh, love that. And uh, certainly uh, appreciate uh, you opening up uh, there the other week, Mark. And, you know, this is a good one. I, you know, I must admit that I'm not very much of a celebrity watcher. Uh, so I, I don't know. Oh, if I am. You are? Okay. So let me guess, you've been uh, on the line to Perez Hilton or whoever, so somebody tonight that knows a little bit more, or you've at least watched entertainment. Oh, is, is PerezHilton.com, TheDirty.com, <laughs> subscribing to the Hey app because I want to watch Real Housewives of Vancouver from 10 years ago for the 17th time. I'm all in. I'm very, very shallow, and I consume a lot of this this wasteful empty calorie celebrity gossip <laughs> for some for some reason that my even my wife doesn't understand. So I, I think one thing that you've probably picked up on, and this is this is for all of our listeners, is that Liberty and Formula One have always done this atrocious job of almost forcefully trotting out a token celebrity at every single event. So we've seen it before. We've seen Justin Bieber trotted out at Monaco, and we've seen poor Serena Williams trotted out in a race awkwardly when Max Verstappen won, and nobody kind of understood how to approach the interviews post-race. We've seen Will <laughs> Smith at some of these races. But I think my sense has always been that, look, they're being they're being paid to be there or they're going because it's an opportunity to cross-promote a product, a film, something that they've done themselves. I, I've never loved it. What I want to see is I want to see celebrities there because they're compelled to be there because they love the sport, they're interested in the sport, and they're curious about the sport. And I'm not saying that Will Smith, Serena, and Justin Bieber weren't. It just seems forced and unnatural. So we've seen celebrities at CODA before. You know, we've seen Matthew McConaughey, although I think he's appeared at a lot of races. We've seen Michael Douglas, although I think he's been at a lot of races. We've seen a lot of other kind of I would say B plus grade film stars at these events. What I'm really curious to see at this event is not whether they trot out some 50 year old white dude that's been <laughs> in a bunch of thriller movies in the 90s. What I really want to see is 
how broadly the appeal of Formula One has grown. I want to see if there's young hip hop stars there or young pop stars or young musicians or young movie stars. I want to see if there's older established quality A-list actresses there because they want to participate in the sport that they've been watching on Netflix for the last three years. I'm very curious to see. And what I want to see is I want to see them discreetly in the stands watching because they want to be there. What I don't want to see is them trotted out in what's a clear marketing blitz. So I'm curious to see. We've seen them before. My sense is that they're always there for promotionary purposes. I just want to see somebody there because they love it. And what I'm curious to see is, is JJ Watt going to be there? Mm -hmm. I don't know if the NFL calendar is going to line up, but maybe he's there Saturday for qualifying. I'd love to see some of these folks because what we are seeing are more and more celebrities sharing their passion for Formula One through social media. Given that this is now the first time we've really raced in, in the U.S. since the pandemic, I'm curious to see how much of that interest translates into celebrities showing up. So yeah, we'll see. Do we know? Do we have a confirmation whether or not Will Smith will be there getting jiggy with it this weekend or not? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. I couldn't lose. I'm all that song's 24 years old, I know, dog. I know, but it's it's low-hanging fruit and I had to had to go there. But fair, also just fair. based on your No, you, dude, you had to save that for Miami, not for Austin. <laughs> Put that back in the bag and bring that out next May. I'll bring it out next May. So, anyways, uh, yeah, oh God. Because we're don't going to Miami. Me. Yeah, I know. Just don't tempt me. No, don't tempt but me. I get we're it. Going, I get like it. the song, we're going to Miami. I get it. Just don't take me down that road. <laughs> Don't take me down that road. It's a bad destination for, for everyone. Uh, but I was also going to say, judge of your comments, you'll be extremely disappointed if they wheel out Jean-Claude Van Damme or somebody like that as their, like their celebrity du jour on Sunday. On that note, my hard drive's full. We need to sign <laughs> off. Very good. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much uh, for downloading listening to the show. Thank you, as always, for all the fantastic emails and all the tweets and everything like that. If you want to get in touch, by all means, do so. Send us a tweet at ScooterYF1Pod at uh sorry at scootery f1 pod if you want to send us an email this is where i'm going to get it right at scootery f1 pod at gmail.com and that's it that's a wrap we will be back in a couple of days with the preview for the u.s grand prix at the circuit of americas in austin texas and until then have an awesome week and on behalf of myself and mr mark hamilton we'll talk to you soon bye for now <laughs>